0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamiltonians from every ward have joined together to launch a community group that wants to see change at Hamilton City Council. I elect Hamilton as a vision and we'll give you the details. Every province here in Canada has had a different response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The McDonald laurier Institute has compared the performance of each province and created what they call the Provincial COVID Misery Index. Dr. Sean Watley joins us to talk about that. And how can we have better conversations to help reduce vaccine hesitancy? It's all coming up on the program today. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with on the program today, I want to talk about the municipal election. Now I understand that it's still some time away uh, when all of Ontario municipalities, of course, will be electing councils, maybe new councils, depending on the area, I suppose. Well, Hamiltonians from all wards have joined together to launch a community group to change who sits around the Hamilton City Council table. The stated goal of I Elect Hamilton is what they call new leadership for a better Hamilton. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Graham Crawford, former Citizen of the Year, of course, and spokesperson for uh, Elect Hamilton. Uh, Graham, good to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days.
1: Bill, I'm doing fine. Thank you for inviting me back.
0: Well, uh, important issue. Uh, I, I guess in, in, there's a part of me that's not too surprised at this because there've been an, an awful lot of people that, in, in this community over the last number of years, Graham yourself included, that have had some some concerns about uh, the way we're being governed at the local level. And uh, is, is I'm assuming that's part of the uh, the rationale for the, for this group to form in the first place.
1: Oh, Bill, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was the catalyst. To be honest, it was just uh, people feeling a little. know fed up frustrated and uh mean, i remember i wrote an op-ed back in december of 2019 that i i called it civic sadness and that actually triggered some people getting in touch with me which literally turned into i elect uh we first met in january of 2020 second meeting uh february and then COVID hit and so we literally have not met face to face since then it's all been virtual since then which isn't Terrific, but hey, we we did our thing and we've launched. We, as you know, we launched with a full page ad and the Spectator uh, on Saturday. A website is up, and uh, we're active.
0: I'm surprised is that, because so many other things that were impacted by COVID, especially, uh, tended to just kind of peter out. It, it seems as if this has actually gained momentum over the last number of months.
1: Oh, you know, it's it's funny because because you can't hold a public meeting. They're literally, you know, they're not allowed. So we couldn't call a public meeting and, you know, because I I believe without any difficulty, we could have filled, uh, you know, easily two, three, four hundred people at a theater or convention center or wherever. But we, of course, couldn't do any of that. So all of this has been done sort of privately. The group, though, is about 50 people. In fact, it is is 50 people um, who have stayed in touch virtually, uh, emails, Zoom meetings, phone calls, you know, the stuff we have to do uh... to to be safe and uh... that group has put all of this stuff together communications people uh... uh photographers uh, uh... branding specialists uh, uh... you know community outreach people researchers lawyers that's those are the people who are part of this this fifty person catalyst group remember bill because can't have a public meeting so how do you grow mm-hmm. so now bill, I will tell you, because I've seen every one of the inquiries via our website, uh, which is IelectHamilton.ca, that, that's over a long weekend, and we ha- now have hundreds, and I'm not overstating this, Bill, hundreds of volunteers who've come forward over the long weekend, and a beautiful long weekend at that, I might add, whether it was, now,
0: you know. Let's talk about the name itself, uh, which, uh, you know, I think pretty much goes right to the source of uh, the reason for what you're doing here but uh, for those who haven't seen the web page yet I elect is actually an acronym isn't it
1: it is an acronym because we did some research um in terms of what sort of priorities might uh, munis- municipalities have in common the kinds of things that everybody sort of focuses on asks questions about uh, puts money into in terms of tax dollars And there is research, there's national research on this, municipalities across the country, not to mention our own city managers' strategic priorities, as well as our future Hamilton, which is a program, uh, a citizen engagement uh, initiative by the city of Hamilton. Anyway, we looked at all of that stuff. We were looking for something that would be memorable, but then we hit on something that would not just be memorable, it actually would be instructive. So I elect... Is, a, is one word, but there are six priorities in it. Uh, it's infrastructure, economy, leadership, environment, community, transportation. So that the first letter of each of those priorities spells I elect. And our goal, Bill, is to, is to use that in part as a framework for, for voters uh, across the city, no matter where you live, uh, to... Ask questions of any candidate, whether that's an incumbent or somebody you've never met before. But uh, when that election uh, starts, I mean, candidates can register, as you know, May 2nd of next year. So it's a year away. Um, But this will help, I think, we believe voters think about the kinds of questions they may want to ask about. And certainly we're going to be providing information on our website uh, about those things. We also would like to believe that by doing all of that, because you know we've just started, and there's a, we have tons of uh, of elements and strategies and plans that we will be implementing over the next uh, you know year and a bit, obviously, um, that uh, will I hope get more more people to vote, which is not a bad thing, as you know, our municipal turnout is is not good it's way too well it's
0: it's the lowest of the three levels of government uh, federal and provincial both i draw this and uh, the irony there actually the tragedy in my opinion uh is that it's probably the level of government that has the most impact on people's lives uh, in in the community it's you know it's where the garbage gets picked up it's whether they're going to clear the snow off the sidewalks or the the streets or whatever and it's everything to do with, with, with how we live as a community yet we just don't seem to be engaged when municipal elections roll around
1: I, I, I know there's a there's a, it's it's wild because it, at election time, they, they, there seems to be apathy. But every day between elections, there's frustration and hostility and, and support and happiness as well. Um, but, you know, putting your your ex uh, on a page is where it counts, because that drives who sits around the table and who manages all of the taxes that everybody complains about paying. That's when you get to cast a vote. For the person who's going to spend all of that money, uh, and we're talking, you know, the, the city of Hamilton's budget is like you know one and a half billion dollars a year. It's we're not. This isn't jump change. This is a big corporation.
0: i have got to look at the six categories here. Uh, just you know, infrastructure, economy, leadership, environment, community, and transportation. Uh, you've been around, Graham, and you've seen more than one or two municipal elections in your time, as I have. Are you planning uh, these the awards- the, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> experienced, oh, <thank laughs> not you, old, thank but experienced. Right. Uh, these words get bandied around just about every election, uh, the candidates' debates and everything else. What happens for, from the time they have those meetings until they actually get around the cor- the, the horseshoe there at Hamilton City Hall? Uh, uh, do they forget about these things? Are they are they lost in in you know the the, the enormity of the challenges here? I mean, it, it just seems as if these are the topics that people keep bringing up time and time again. Uh, I. I, I Why aren't the municipal leaders, why aren't those who we elect to this office uh, adhering to these and and using these as their guiding principles?
1: Of course, it's the question, Bill. You're absolutely right. The question is, if these are the six priorities that people keep talking about, the problem is the people around the table are the same people year after year, election after election. At some point, you have to ask yourselves, and that's why we have an online resident survey that's built around these six priorities, asking people what's your experience in your ward? And, Bill, I'm happy to say, I, this is, uh, uh, I'm happy and I'm also surprised. Long weekend, May 24th weekend, we launched Saturday morning. We have over 1,000 completed surveys already. Because that that, this is not a two-question survey. Mm-hmm. You, you, have to, you have to go to our website, you have to click on the survey, and you've got to complete it. And we have over a 1,000 responses already. Every single ward has responded, people in every single ward. And I don't mean we got, you know, one in Ward 5, because I've looked at the data already, and it, it is spread throughout the city. So, yes, the question is, well, if we think these things are important, you need to connect this with the person who's been sitting representing you and say, How have, have they been, in fact, representing me uh, in the way that I want them to represent me? You know How is your counselor, who may have been there for 15 years, 20 years, 35 years, doing when it comes to things like the economy and the environment? You know, Nowhere on this list does getting a, a new blue box appear. Nowhere on this list um, does getting a nice letter or a nice visit or a nice ribbon cut by a counselor. This is the hard stuff that we all care about. And I... I th- we believe with I-Elect that what we need to do is just to educate people so they make a fair and informed decision when they cast their vote. And if they choose to vote again for their incumbent, so be it. But, but we at least want people to have a framework to make some decisions, to ask some questions, to evaluate, well, how is my counselor doing on these things? Have I been well served for 15 years, 18 years? Or maybe is it time for change or a fresh look at things?
0: Well, let's talk about that. For those who may have lost track of, uh, during the pandemic, there are 15 people on Hamilton City Council plus the mayor, so 16 altogether, uh, that, that are making the decisions about what's going to happen in this community and how it's going to, the money's going to be spent. But there, what's your expectation here, Graham? Do you want to see changes? Do you want to see some of those 16 faces gone after the next election? Uh, is there an expectation here that you can motivate people to actually exact that change that you're talking about? Because uh, you know, I want you to answer that on, in the context of what you and I, <clears throat> excuse me both know of the power of incumbency but ninety percent of the people that run for municipal council get reelected if they're an incumbent and that's not just a hamilton statistic that's a provincial statistic so you know if if you're looking to change bodies there uh, you've got a monumental task ahead of you
1: it's a huge task bill and you're absolutely right incumbency you know has its privileges as it were Uh, and you know we're going to be seeing those incumbents uh, spending money our money uh, on things to make us feel better in our wards, they'll be spending our money on uh, uh, thank you ads that will appear in newspapers, uh, you know, uh, neighborhood newsletters with their photos, and we'll pay for all of that. So if you're if you're somebody who wants to run against an incumbent, uh, the odds are stacked against you. On the other hand, if that's a role I elect Hamilton can play via our website which, as I mentioned, is islethamilton.ca. Like the, the thing is, maybe change is possible. Certainly, we believe, as a group and a growing group at that, and Bill, I'm telling you, the comments that people attached when they sent us their emails and, and, and volunteered, because we now literally have you know, hundreds of volunteers, uh, it, it's heartwarming because they say it's time. It, we need change. We need fresh thinking, better leadership. Will it happen, Bill? Of course, oh, we'll only know uh, on October 25th, 2022, the day after we all put our X's, and I hope hopefully a lot more of us are putting X's on ballots. That's when we'll know for sure. Have we made any difference? But we are in this for the long haul. Um, we are raising money, Bill. We raised thousands and i mean many thousands of dollars over the long weekend We're, i mean that's right out of the gate um there's an appetite for this will it be a will will it lead to significant change around the council table of course we hope so that is our goal um but at a minimum we want people to be informed voters uh we want them to vote and we want them to be informed and ideally they will assess that it's time for change and new leadership. Bill, all we have to do is to look at what's happening with things like Sewergate and the Red Hill cover ups where this council, these people, these incumbents kept secrets from people. And I'm telling you, if there was if there's one issue that has galvanized Hamiltonians, it's Sewergate. To to walk to, to to think that our council knew that was happening and they kept it from us until there, there was literally a, a whistleblower and the spec revealed the story. People are still, still very angry about that.
0: No, I know. I hear, I hear
1: that as well. I'm sure you do. Listen,
0: are you going to be endorsing candidates?
1: No, we will absolutely not be endorsing uh, candidates. There is no slate, despite what some uh, uh, pundits would like uh, people to believe. No slate. Uh, no endorsations, no party affiliation, and any money, every penny that we raise will go to this campaign, not to a single candidate. We will not be funding any candidates either. This is a civic movement for better government. And uh, whoever those people become, who we choose as, as our councillors and mayor, then uh, those are the people who will you know, lead us for the next four years. But no, we are, not, we are not endorsing candidates. Again, there are people who say, oh, yeah, of course you're going to do that. We're not. I, I guarantee you, we voted on this. This isn't my opinion. This is our opinion. I elect will not be endorsing candidates.
0: Well, as you know, uh, people that listen to this program on a regular basis know that I'm, I'm a strong advocate for people getting engaged in the political uh, process uh, at well, whatever level it is, and especially at the municipal level. Uh, and I wish you be- best of luck. I mean, these are very laudable goals. I mean, and I don't see anything controversial here uh, with infrastructure, economy, leadership, environment, community, and transportation. Those are all key issues in any municipality, but certainly in the in Hamilton area. In, over the last little while, uh, there's some questions as to how these things are actually being addressed by current counselors, and maybe. Be- Issue, that's, a, that's a discussion that we're going to have, I guess, in greater detail as we get closer to that date a year and a half from now. Uh, we got to go. Uh, the uh, page of they, they want to go to if they want to get information is, once again?
1: Yes, it's IElectHamilton.ca, and our focus is new leadership for a better Hamilton.
0: Graham Crawford, spokesperson for I Elect Hamilton. Uh, Graham, you know we'll be talking more about this in the future, but thanks so much for the time today.
1: Thank you, Bill, very much.
0: Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just about any time of the day, you can turn on one of the all news uh, television networks and uh, hear the various premiers right across the province uh, talking about their strategies for battling COVID and uh, their expert advice that they're leaning on. They all say pretty much the same thing, singing from the same song sheet. Uh, But the reality is the numbers tell a different story here. And uh, some of us are doing it much better than others in battling this and trying to uh, flatten the curve, as we've been talking about for about the last 15 months. And uh, I want to go by some of those numbers, too, because I think we have to have an understanding as to who's doing this right and why it's it's going as well as it is in some parts of the country and in other parts, like Ontario, uh, not so good, frankly. To do that, uh, I want to talk about the McDonald laurie Institute, who's done some great analysis, of course, of this. Uh, and uh, Dr. Sean Watley is with us now. Dr. Watley is a senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute and a former president of the Ontario Medical Association. Doctor, pleasure to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks again, Bill. Uh, the uh, program here in the analysis you did is called the, uh, the the Provincial COVID Misery Index. Rather daunting title. Maybe you could explain to our listeners exactly what that means.
2: Brilliant. So just to be clear, I'm a fellow at the Institute, but the author is Dr. Richard Otis. so I don't want to steal his thunder there. And the, the Provincial Misery Index looks at all 10 provinces, using eleven different measures and these data feeds are publicly available you can go on the site click through them there's some beautiful um, summary slides but then also you can dig into the data if you want but it breaks things down into three big categories number one the disease how bad was the bug itself and then number two the response to the disease how good of a job did we do at controlling it by province and then finally economic fallout how much are we going to have to pay for this over the next several decades
0: well let's talk about that analysis and I I think we went shut on the program over the last number of weeks as we started to look at some of the the data that we've been able to see on a national level doctor Uh, the the, the maritime provinces uh, the eastern provinces seem to do much better than the rest of the country in this what what's the what's the reason for their success relatively speaking
2: Yeah, no. So great point. So lockdowns themselves, sort of these stringent public health measures have heaped misery on the larger, more populous provinces, while at the same time, Atlantic Canada's bubble shows the importance of keeping the virus out. And so, you know, the data seems to suggest that early action by the federal government on foreign travel could have reduced misery for Canadians. So that's the approach Atlantic Canada did. And then because of that, you know, PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick turns out at the top of the heap overall when it comes to disease response and the economic fallout.
0: I want to maybe get a little deeper into that whole idea about the bubble because uh, there's been a lot of controversy, of course, about you know allowing foreigners into this country. I mean, travelers, business people it doesn't really matter why they're here. Even if they're just coming here, you know, to, to set up a shop here, that's wonderful. But uh, it's we already know, I guess, doctor, that that's one of the main reasons, one of the main causes for this virus spreading as quickly as it did right across the globe. Uh, we didn't do a very good job of that in this country. The ones that we always look to. Uh, the Australia's New Zealand's Hong Kong it comes to mind as well that that actually did a pretty good job initially all started with that travel ban
2: well, there seems to be now we're looking at the at the global uh, scale. So we also have the, the um, COVID misery index, which compares uh, 15 different countries. And that was the first iteration of this. And now this provincial COVID misery index is kind of, uh, we've revamped the whole study just to look at Canada itself. But your question applies to the world stage now. And you're absolutely correct. Those countries who were able to isolate themselves and keep everybody out and just focus on keeping, sorry, keep the virus out, right? Keep the virus out of their country. They've done a very good job. Now, having said that, other countries that haven't been able to keep the virus out have done fairly well also because they have used a different policy approach. Every country has the same basic policy measures so they can test, they can lock down, they can vaccinate, close schools, wear masks, you know, social distancing. They all have the same policy toolkit and yet some countries have been able to do a much better job than others. And so when you're looking at the global scale, yes, one major approach would be to say, OK, we're going to close our borders and not let the virus get into our place. However, if you look at uh, South Korea or Taiwan, they took a, a massive testing approach and, you know, uh, a hand sanitizing like crazy and wearing masks and yet trying to keep society open so they they kept the virus out but in a slightly different way by 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 really trying to control anything that could get in whereas new zealand australia they just locked down the borders and kept the virus out that way
0: and I know the people that are, are going to be critical of that are going to say, "Well, look at those are island nations. It's a lot easier to do that." And, and there's an argument, I guess, to be made for that. But uh, that doesn't preclude the idea that you should at least try to do something about that to mitigate the impact that that can have. And that's the other element to this. But in hindsight, though, Doctor, I, and I'm talking on a national level now, we were pretty slow out of the gate here, weren't we? I mean, we were taught and, and instructed right from day one, as you said, about the protocol, washing hands, and we weren't wearing masks initially, but we with the social distancing. But we're we're also told about things like contact tracing and, and testing and we on a national level did a pretty lousy job of that in the, especially in the first eight or nine months when i thought we were really going to be ramping it up
2: well certainly we've uh, i think everybody agrees on this point we've learned wh- how unprepared we were and and for now now there's even debate on that people will say well we were prepared but we threw out our pandemic plans and we wrote brand new plans just for this particular pandemic so okay, then we weren't prepared on on a leadership level. We weren't prepared from a government capacity level. Regardless, we could have done much better. And when you say okay, Canada is a big a big country, but it's not that big. You know, thirty five million people. Uh, there certainly other uh, countries have been able to do a better job at keeping the virus out. So to your point, absolutely, could we have done better? Now, the challenge with looking backwards is that that's great for assigning blame, and and we need to do some of that. For sure, there's blame to be spread around, but I think... Uh, with this misery index, what we're hoping to do is identify the peak performers and see how we can do a better job for all Canadians. Because certainly what we've been doing in some places, for example, in Ontario, Toronto is now the, the most locked down city in North America. I mean, that, that is terrible. We need to figure out a way to do better. And I think that starts with identifying the best performers in our country and around the world.
0: Let's talk about the lockdown scenario because our our premier, of course, is is married to this idea. This, we've as you say, we're still going through our third lockdown. We've got an end date apparently sometime in the middle of June, maybe, uh, depending on what the numbers look like. But uh, to to rationalize that, as you know, just last week, Dr., when he was talking with that, Premier Ford said, look at the numbers are going down, so this lockdown is working. Uh, Do they work? Are they an effective tool? And, And the other, Part of that question, clearly, I think that needs to be addressed is, is it worth the price that we have to pay to do that?
2: You have about three great questions packed in there. You know, the the author of this particular study um, said that uh, lockdowns have been pitched as the magic bullet right they're going to yep. save us and and however the author goes on to say that the disease is predictable but human behavior is not and so to put all our faith in lockdown certainly if you look at any of the public health um textbooks prior to covid they didn't put lockdown right up at the top of the page on chapter one as you know this is what you have to do to control a pandemic now at the same time i have to be a little cautious you, <laughs> you may have seen some of the uh regulate regulators uh public announcements just a few weeks ago saying, hey, docs, don't go on the public radio and criticize lockdowns. So anything that I say has to be 100% evidence-based. And all I can say is that the evidence is not clearly in support of lockdowns. In fact, there's a lot of evidence out there saying that non-pharmacologic interventions, you know, uh, mask wearing, school closure, um, uh, stay at home orders, uh, don't have the impact that we were hoping. It's actually healthy for people to be outside and exercising. And if there is a virus, it's very diluted in all that fresh air. Um, so certainly there's a, a robust debate going down in that area. I've been very strongly against lockdowns um, as, as a method to, to uh, respond to this disease. But at the same time, I have to be careful and, and make sure that I'm always po- pointing you to the data and the literature.
0: Well, and that's part of the debate we've had here, and I understand that there's arguments on both sides of this, and I'm sure you've heard them uh, over the last 15 months as well, Doctor, but uh, that, that's why they they... they the last part of that question is: It worth the price we're paying? I mean, to shut everything down, uh, it, there's a certain amount of consternation that that causes, and and obviously when we're you know our mental health has been suffering as a result of this. I mean, uh, you, there's an argument to be made that you tie all of those stats that uh, about how miserable we are after the, the last 15 months, is that the lockdowns were a contributing factor to that.
2: Well, we've been obsessed with worst-case scenario data, worst-case scenario planning, right? We've focused on one risk, and we call this risk disaggregation. We've focused on only one thing. 300 people die in Ontario every day from non-COVID causes. And we haven't had any talk about all of that pain and suffering. I mean, I've, for the last several decades, I've been saying we do not have the health care capacity to care for the people who already have care. And now that COVID's on the scene, that's the only thing we've been wanting to talk about for the last uh, 15, 18 months. And so, absolutely, I agree there's a huge amount of follow-up. The trouble is we don't have that data yet. We're not going to know how many cancers were missed, how many people didn't get their cardiac uh, bypass surgery, how many people didn't get their colon cancer taken out. But on the front lines of care, we're seeing it all the time. But there's also a whole bunch of softer data. You know, what about the elderly couple who was just barely able to manage in their apartment because their daughter checked on them every single day? Now you lock down that apartment building, and guess what? Mom and dad end up in the hospital after getting very, very sick in the process. And I have particular cases in mind when I'm talking to you about this. And so there's all of that pain and suffering that we are going to have to come to grips with. You mentioned mental health another massive issue Geo Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario is saying, hey we need to we need help guys we're overflowing we've never seen this much mental health problems in the young people young, the youth population in the last 30 years and so uh, the data's out there and and I think people are starting to talk about the, the unintended consequences of, or the misery shall we say due to our response but to your point we need to be talking about it more
0: I think. Well, yeah, the one that jumped out of me, of course, was I think it's a 400% increase in uh, usage for the kids' helpline. Uh, And and that's talking about youth mental health issues. We haven't even touched on the adult uh, mental health issues. You know, people that are out of work or can't make ends meet, as you say, financially and things of this nature. Is it fair, though, doctor, to... to put that into the equation about lockdown, no lockdown, and things of this nature, because some people are saying, look, you know, we have to worry about health, don't worry about the economy, we'll do that later on. Uh, You can't separate the two, can you, as as some people are trying to do? Economy is
2: intimately connected with health. I mean, the data on that is conclusive. Socioeconomic status is directly tied to your health. The, the, The sickening thing for me about all this is, okay, you tell me to to stay inside my house. Okay, great. I'll I'll, I'll continue to work virtually. I can see patients online. What about all the people, the essential workers who have to bring food to my house? They can't lock down. They're still out there. They're still working in factories. They're still working in big buildings, collecting food for me to bring it to my house. Well, a lot of those people are on the lower socioeconomic end of the scale. So there's that whole debate that we should be having and people are starting to have. But on top of that, we are dreaming if we think that we can impact our economy the way we have and not feel the pain for, of that for the next 20 years. So, for example, when you look at our change in debt and change in borrowing, again, on the global scale, you look at the at the UK, they had a 27.2% increase in their debt. Sorry, Canada had a 22 27.2% increase in our debt levels. UK increased by 3.9%. So almost a 10 times difference there. When you look at our borrowing difference, we increased our borrowing by 41.1%, whereas the UK only 10%. So we've been borrowing, we've been going into debt, we've been shackling our economy, and we think we're going to get away with this. And certainly that has me worried, Uh Because it's intimately tied with health, you can't have people suffering economically and healthy at the same time. We need to protect both of those issues.
0: Going forward, let's assume that uh, instead of the worst case scenarios uh, that that we've been hearing from in the last little while, things start to roll along. The vaccination program seems to be at at a pretty decent pace right now. I don't know if we're going to get the 85 or 90 percent we're going to need for herd immunity, but we're going to strive for it anyway. And we're going to start reopening things. Uh, Maybe by the fall, we're going to see some of these stuff. What's going to happen going forward? Uh, Is mask wearing going to be part of our lifestyle for the the foreseeable future? Are there other things that we're going to have to do just to maintain some sense of of, of well-being, because as you say, uh, just because the numbers to go down doesn't necessarily mean the virus is gone.
2: So, so again, you've got about three fantastic questions in there. Number one, I think COVID is going to be seasonal, and we've seen this with other pandemics where you get a peak and then it comes down, and then everybody um, takes credit for for the peak, you know, for the for the decline in cases, yeah. when actually that decline in cases may very well have been seasonal or at least seasonality may have had a big impact on it. So that's one thing I do have uh, high hopes for the summer. I think we're going to we're going to all cheer and say, hey, COVID's behind us. However, a lot of people are saying, wait, wait a second, wait a second, this virus is now endemic. It's everywhere. And there's a very good chance that we're going to be seeing it in the fall, much like we see influenza every year. So there's that aspect of it. The second uh, uh, comment, though, you you bring up is vaccination. I think we've been, uh, I mean, We really are... we are allowed to use the word miraculous with this vaccine. I mean, no one thought we were going to get a vaccine this fast. And certainly the uh, MRA vaccines, I know there's debate about them, but they are exceptionally effective, like over 95% effective. So vaccinate our vulnerable population, especially the elderly. Um, isolate them if we can until we get them uh, vaccinated. All of that, I think, has been fantastic. And, and I think we have the, we're on the right path there. The third piece, though, in this, and and you're asking a bigger question, I think, deals with government capacity. Do we have the institutional capacity to really protect Canadians when it comes to an external threat such as a viral pandemic? And uh, many of us have been writing about this for the last few decades. That certainly in the healthcare uh, piece, I don't think I'm not. I am certain we were not set up to be able to respond to even a small increase in demand. We were closing hospitals every winter, or rather shutting down operating rooms, for example, because we were overwhelmed with influenza. COVID offered just a slight bump in the cases, and we were crushed. So there's that aspect of the capacity of the healthcare system, but there's also the government capacity. Do we have the institutional capacity to actually lead this kind of a threat um, and be able to protect Canadians? That concerns me more, and that perhaps that's geeking out a bit even to raise that, but I think that's something we need to be keeping in mind as Canadians.
0: Absolutely, and it frightens me as well because, let's face it, politicians, and I guess for that matter, really, voters, have pretty short memories. Uh, I mean, in southern Ontario, as you remember, Doctor, I mean, we went through SARS a number of years ago, yeah. and uh, and it was devastating to a certain percentage of the population. Well, some very smart people did some analysis on that, and they did write a playbook like, hey, this is how we're going to do it if it happens again. And over time, we just forgot about it. We thought, "Ah, oh, come on, that pandemic, we don't, we're not going to have one of those. And you know that governments are always under pressure to keep taxes low, and... And they're going to look at some of the funding that they've initiated for this, and they're going to say, we don't really need that anymore. Uh, and we're going to get caught once again, because you know there will be something coming up somewhere down the road. Yeah,
2: yeah, no, absolutely. And, and when you mentioned SARS, certainly um, South Korea and Taiwan, they were experts on this particular pandemic because they learned from SARS they took what they learned and put it into pandemic planning and so they applied that to this particular pandemic whereas it seems like we took all of our pandemic plans and threw them out and said no let's start over let's let's write a whole new um a, a new playbook One of the key um, ideas in pandemic planning, and this is from a gentleman in Alberta. His name skips my mind right now, but he's been big on this. He says you can't focus on one risk. You have to look at the whole system. Is your water supply in place? Do you have supply chain management protected? Do you have the hydro grid in place? Can people get food? Can they still take care of their family members? You have to look at everything. We have not taken that approach. We've looked at one thing coronavirus that's it and and we've been obsessed with it and and so i'm hoping that people will be able to look back at this in a year or two and say okay wow you know we we really could have done a lot better let's focus on on what we can learn from this how can we improve things for canadians for the next one that comes because Pandemics are a fact of, of life. They will come every so often.
0: They will. Uh, the uh, we Just Google McConvory Institute because they, the report uh, in its entirety is up on the web page there, and they can get their own uh, time to look at it in the analysis. Uh, doctor, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again down the road. You too, Bill. Thanks again. Take care. Dr. Sean Watley, of course, a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and a former president of the Ontario Medical Association.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, after a very frustrating start to the vaccination program uh, earlier this year, it looks like uh, the Canadian uh, program is is starting to unfold as it should. Uh, Even yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that over half of Canadians have now received at least one dose of the COVID vaccine.
2: And to everyone who's now eligible to book a first dose. We're all counting on you. Make sure you get your shot when you can. If we all do our part, if we get vaccinated and continue following public health guidelines, we will have a much better summer and we will get through this crisis once and for all.
0: Well, that means people are going to have to roll up their sleeves and, uh, well, as much as the numbers are looking pretty good right now, we've always been told about herd immunity and the fact that a certain percentage of the population needs to get vaccinated. And you would think after what we've heard about COVID-19 over the last 14 or 15 months uh, and this miraculous discovery of vaccines that are actually going to be very, very effective against COVID-19, that people would be rushing uh, to get the vaccination and, and make sure that they're going to be protected. And many of us are, not all of us are. Vaccine hesitancy has become a problem for a variety of reasons, uh, not just here in Canada, but uh, right across North America as uh, the vaccination program starts to roll out. So how do you address this? How do we assuage people's concerns about this. Uh, Well, there's an interesting uh, theory and strategy that's being developed, and to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome to the program Professor Miles Leslie. Uh, Professor Leslie is a professor with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today.
3: morning, Bill. Good to be here
0: uh great to have you here to talk about a very important subject because i get you know information from listeners almost on a daily basis about vaccination hesitancy about the concerns and it, uh, there's so many different aspects to this aren't there professor i mean people who are just dead set against vaccinations and, and that's one element i guess that we need to deal with it because it is a reality but a lot of other folks that were anticipating this have got some some trepidation right now because of some of the stories we've heard about things like astrazeneca and others how, how do you approach a situation like
3: this well, yeah, I think you're right to call out the fact that there's there, there's there's people, I think, that are perhaps dead set against, or maybe we just have to have a better conversation with even them. Um, and maybe it's not so much at an us and them as we just want to be able to get into it with anybody who's got concerns about this. Uh, how do we approach it? Well, I think a lot of the thinking, and it's, it sort of matches back to what you started with there, in the field right now is very much about quantity. How much hesitancy does a particular person have? And that's sort of the end of the story, the beginning and the end of the story. So that person over there, they're quote-unquote dead set against it. They have an almost infinite quantity of hesitancy. And that person standing over there, well, they actually called their family doctor the day after the vaccines became available. So they have almost zero hesitancy. And somewhere in between, there's an awful lot of people, some of whom have a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And when you go from on the left-hand side, somebody who's got none at all to the right-hand side, somebody who's got a whole bunch. That's an interesting place to start, and it's certainly true, but it only gets you so far, because now you've just got some people who you sort of think, well, I guess they've got so much hesitancy that we just won't bother chatting with them. I wonder about that. I wonder if not bothering to chat is really the right way to go. And I think there's a second part of this that we want to get into that we want to think about a little bit more closely, and that's the quality of the hesitancy. So not just the amount, the quantity that people have, but the quality. Where is it coming from? What's, what's actually making the person hesitate to do this? Um, if you only think about it as a quantity number, that person's got a whole bunch, that person's got a little bit, you end up thinking, well, we'll just give up on the whole bunch, and it must all be kind of the same. But what if it isn't the same? What if the qualities, the origins of the hesitancy are quite different? One person's afraid of needles, and the other person thinks that their religion says it's a bad idea. That's quite a different starting point to say, I'm not really going to roll up my sleeve, right?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. The concern here, though, as as you say, there's so many different variations on this, uh, but we don't know, I guess, initially uh, whether or not this is based on misinformation or or just a certain concern about, as we say, with you know, AstraZeneca and blood clotting and things of this nature. Uh, You you can go onto just about any social media site or and and on the internet for that matter, and you're going to see somebody's theory. You know, I mean, (laughs) you know, it, it could be somebody. Well, I'm sure you've seen this one, Professor. Somebody actually thinks that this is all Bill Gates' idea. This is a major scam now to try to you know put little chips into all of us so he can control the world and um, I mean that's out there and some people actually are buying into that sort the of thing. Man
3: can't stay on top of his marriage. I don't know if he's going to be able yeah, to control well, the whole I know, world. A,
0: well, apparently he he he's multitasking according to what they're saying. I mean. <laughs> but 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 then you've got other people that are simply saying, and I'm sure you've heard this one as well, that some women I know, that especially uh, in the, you know, the younger demographic, are saying, well, it, it can affect pregnancy, your ability to get pregnant. We want to start a family. Those are conversations we need to have. You can't just dismiss those people, can
3: you? No, no. And I, so it's not my job, and I'm not a clinician, to be able to make these pronouncements. But I can tell you right now that one of the things that's happened uh, particularly for that group of people, that very specific quality or origin of hesitancy, which is about fertility issues and whether I'm going to be able to conceive and I'm going to be able to have a baby, um, this, because of how this has played out, this being COVID, the, the entire pandemic, the way this has played out is we've had this huge trial. All sorts of people who've had, and when I say all sorts, I mean we're into the millions of people who've had the vaccine have become pregnant and have successfully delivered children. So we actually have a real-time evidence pool to be able to say, you don't need to worry about that. As a matter of fact, we're protecting you and the baby by getting the vaccine. Uh, So it's not my job, and I'm not qualified to say that kind of stuff, but I do just, when you bring that up, I want to immediately say, that one, you really don't have to worry about, because it's playing out in real time. We can show that people are successfully conceiving and having children, and both the mother and the child are protected. Um, I'm sorry, now I've said that, and I've kind of lost my train of thought. Your your point was that there's an awful lot of misinformation out there. Yeah. And I think uh, when we say something like misinformation, what we're assuming is that the information that we have is better than the information that they have. It's an us and them kind of thing. They are misinformed. We are properly informed. And in many cases, that may be true, But when it comes down to something like somebody's going to stick something in my body and I don't really understand where it comes from or what it does, that whole idea that there's pure hard facts out there and that they're going to dissuade or persuade somebody from doing something kind of falls apart. And so that that idea that their information is bad and our information is good gets really, really sticky really quickly. And we we do ourselves and the conversations that we would have with people a disservice if we think that we're going to be able to throw facts at them. Hey, I don't know what I just did, actually, probably a bit of a mistake for anybody who's listening and worried about, about fertility issues. But hey, you know, you're, you you just don't understand. You're just not smart enough to get this, which is kind of the implication. Maybe somebody wouldn't say it that way, but it's kind of the implication, right? Beyond that is this is a really big concern for this person. This this is their reality. This is where they're coming from. They think, and I, I go back to my various examples, but that they might not be able to have a kid, and being able to have a kid is a really important thing for them. They think that their religion is against this, and their religion is a really important thing for them. They, so we could dismiss that and be um, sort of superior and say that our information is better than their misinformation, or we... Can meet them halfway, which is actually much tougher than it sounds. So it's, I sound like a motivational speaker with "just meet them halfway." <laughs> it's it's way better than that, right? It's much harder than that because you have to be able to go, oh, so you think this thing that I think is unimportant is important, and I have to meet you over there where you think it's important. That's a big that's a big ask in a conversation, especially yeah. the way we have our conversations these days, right? The way we have our conversations, particularly our political ones, is very much about screaming and shouting and getting up on one another's face and proving the other guy wrong and all this kind of stuff. But this conversation involves going, oh, so having a kid is really important to you, or your, your faith and being able to go to worship on, on whatever day of the week that happens is really important to you. It's not to me, but I, ha- I can meet you over there, and we can talk about how actually it's not against your religion, and wouldn't this be a way to be able to go back to church? Or, no, no, it's, it's not going to stop you having a kid. I understand that that's really important for you. Can I help you understand how it's actually going to help you and the kid? Those, it's a, it sounds like, oh, yeah, well, fair enough, just do that. But it's pretty hard because people get into this shouting and screaming sort of mode of talking to one another. And it's, it's, you've got to get past that.
0: Well, that's because so many conversations, for instance, on social media, Twitter, and things of this nature are, as you say, uh, so polarizing. You know, it's, it's black and white. You know, you're wrong and I'm right, and that, that seems to be the attitude. But you talked about this in the essay that was uh, published in the conversation, uh, Professor, about what you've just been explaining and, I guess, describing to us, something called motivational interviewing, uh, which you figure could be an effective tool. Let's talk a little bit about that and how effective it can be.
3: We are uh, a fortunate country in so many ways. And one of our great fortunes is that we have a world leader in the application of motivational interviewing, which sounds like, again, I'm, a, I'm some sort of motivational speaker, um, the application of motivational interviewing to vaccine hesitancy conversations. This is Dr. Arnaud Gagnon in Sherbrooke, Quebec, um, and he has, for more than a decade, been working on applying the principles of motivational interviewing, which comes from a different field. Um to these very difficult conversations with people. Uh, he particularly works in the area of neonatology, so these are brand-new babies that have come into the world, and their parents are wondering, am I going to get the full panel of shots for this kid, or am I just going to wait? And um, the bottom line, the take-home for, for motivational interviewing is, again, it's a little bit like that last rant I just threw at you. It sounds pretty simple on the outside, but doing it's the hard trick. Um It's simple in that you have to find the thing that is positively motivating the person you're talking with. Uh, The the person who is hesitant about or doesn't have a lot of confidence in the vaccine must have something in their life that they're looking forward to as opposed to something in their life that they're trying to avoid. And that thing that they're trying to avoid is quite clearly the vaccine or uh, a, a consequence of taking the vaccine. If you can shift the conversation away from the thing that's bad towards the thing that's wanted, desired, and good, then you've got a real motivation, a positive motivation, as opposed to a negative, wow, I just want to avoid that bad thing from happening. Yeah, but let's talk about the positive thing that you do want to happen. And that's where I would go back to my example about somebody who is has religious objections, potentially, to, to a vaccine, and being able to say, okay, well, I hear that your faith is very important to you, and it sounds like this last 14 or 15 months has been really hard on you because you haven't been able to worship with the other people in your community. Let's then take, so now we found a positive motivation, which is a place that I want to go and a thing that I want to do. Let's take um, the vaccine and show you how the vaccine can get you to that positive thing, because it can. Uh, and it's it will help you have that better thing that you want in life. That's in a nutshell, how motivational interviewing as a, as a technique uh, works. I guess you could stand on the outside and say, well, you're just trying to find something that they like and, and sell it to them. But you're not selling it to them because you're not trying to, you're not doing something that they have to pay money for or anything like that. You're finding the thing that they want and saying, but the vaccine can get you there.
0: The concern, I guess, is it's almost against human nature to actually continue that way with motivational interviewing because I I think we, these days especially, I think perhaps I have a propensity to simply say if somebody comes up with a a view that's contrary to to the way I feel. uh, The first uh, impact here is okay. I want to inundate them with my facts, try to convince them. Uh, And basically, you're you're right. The attitude that if it's subliminal or not is I'm right and you're wrong. Uh, Right off the bat, you're going to have you know somebody who's going to get their defenses up, and there's not going to be much of a Conversation is there?
3: That that's the big hassle of our day. A lot of moaning and groaning about how all oh, attention spans have been snapped and everybody's just liking and swiping right or left on their phones and whatever else. But one of the other things that happened was that our conversation went to exactly what you just described. This like I got I got my my five seconds. It's no longer fifteen minutes. The same. It's my five seconds on the stage, and I got to get out my best points, and I got to win this thing, as opposed to. I'd like to figure out where the other person is coming from. This is, this is just another person, another citizen, another Canadian who's standing in front of me, and I'd like to be able to chat with them and find out where they're coming from on this. I don't have to win or lose this. And I have to admit that when I first started in on the project that we're working on, I had a lot of that same sense that you did, Bill, that what we needed to do uh, here in Alberta, our family doctors are not... Uh, they've just begun in the last, I think, 10 days uh, actually administering the vaccines. But when it was first rolled out, there were none of the family doctors were doing it. And I was really, really unhappy about this. I was like, this is so important. The family doctors are the ones who can have these conversations and do them well, and there should be no pause, no opportunity for the person to, to leave and think about it anymore. It should just go straight into their arm. And that kind of salesman thinking is linked to that idea that I've got to win and then I've got to close the sale. i got to get this person to do this right away. I brought that attitude to my first conversation with uh, Dr. Gagnon and he nodded and listened as a good motivational interviewer does. And he said, um, you're not understanding how this works. When I tell my parents, each parent that comes in and has had a brand new baby that they can choose, they can choose. I am not telling them to do anything. I am not taking their authority and autonomy away from them. I tell them very specifically they will still be good parents, for whatever decision they make, because this is a fellow citizen. This is somebody else who has the right to determine their own future. It's not somebody who needs to be taken down with a bunch of facts and reinformed with our facts. And that change, that's a really that's, a, that's a, a tough one to pull off, and it's a really big attitude difference in how you go into a conversation.
0: Well, absolutely it is, and uh, it's, it's, I can see it's effective because basically what you're doing is, is you're, you're taking the conflict out of the conversation. Uh, and and uh, I, I was intrigued by, as you just mentioned with that element of it, uh, Professor, that uh, your, your end game here is not necessarily to convince the other person of your point of view. It's to understand their point of view.
3: That's it. That's it, exactly. And that, um, so I don't have any, uh, any philosophy in my background at all, but that's sort of, I will use the term in the pop sense as opposed to the real sense. That Zen, that ab- the ability to go into a conversation and go, okay, so where are you coming from? I just want to understand what's up for you, because it sounds like it's really concerning, scary to be where you are. Tell me more about that. I think there's some stuff about vaccine I can tell you, that might make you less concerned, but in the end, this is your choice. This isn't a zero sum game. This isn't a win. This is about let's get to contemplation. Let's get to thinking about this more. Um and that's a that is, that's a it sounds really simple when you write it on paper, which us academics are great at doing. Write it down on paper and say, hey, just go out and do that. It's actually <laughs> really hard to do.
0: What, what, what's, what's the uptake on this? I mean, you know, you've had a face to face with Dr. Gannon, of course, and others in your organization have, but I mean, you'd like to see this uh, filter down to, well, as you say, to family physicians so they could take this sort of approach too. Uh, how, do you, how do you get that message across?
3: Well, our team here in Calgary has been working on uh, a tool. And if you have any family physicians or any physicians, uh, or probably any health professionals at all listening at the moment, they'll all have rolled their eyes to the back of their head. Oh dear, another tool. Here he comes with his tool. We've been working on a tool, and it's not nearly as bad as a whole bunch of the other stuff that people have had. The tool is is to provide um, the physician with uh, a support to be able to have these conversations. So if it's hard, and I think we sort of agree through the conversation so far, that it is kind of difficult to get yourself into this new frame of mind of like, hey, you can be right about this, and I can be right about this. Maybe I can give you some more information, and maybe we maybe we're, we just agree to disagree. The, the getting to that part of the conversation, supporting that better conversation, involves having a tool that says, okay, let me help you quickly triage where these concerns are coming from, not the amount, not that quantity that we talked at the beginning, but the quality. And once you've figured out the quality, so it's somebody who's afraid of needles as opposed to somebody who has concerns about how quickly it was developed, or somebody else who has concerns about how it fits into their religion, or somebody else who has concerns about whether they can conceive and have a child or not, all of which are very different things, we can, we can quickly triage those people out and then start bringing the best material that family doctors from across the country have been bringing to their conversations directly to the doctor who's looking at the app, who's looking at the tool. So that doctor could go, okay. So my patient here has suggested that she's quite concerned about whether she's going to be able to have a child in the future because of the vaccine. Let me just quick, oh, here it is right here. Here are what colleagues from across Canada have been saying in these conversations, not to prove their point, not to win the argument, but rather to help the person think through and, and feel like they've been heard, that these are real concerns, as opposed to just sort of written off with, wow, you don't have to worry about that, come on. Get over here and get your get your sleeve up
0: uh, we are right up against the clock here i'm going to ask our, our listeners actually go to theconversation.com uh and the essay is there for them to uh, to read uh, how better conversations can help reduce vaccine hesitancy for covid19 and other shots as well professor leslie thank you so very much uh, for your time today and for the great piece on the conversation
3: thank you for having me i hope that uh, people go ahead and get vaccinated